direct bearing upon our lesson and sermon this morning. So take your Bibles and open them to the book of James. James chapter 1. And this morning I want to read from verse 13 all the way down through verse 18. And if you would stand with me for the reading of God's blessed word. Let's ask for his blessing. Now, Father, we come to the reading and preaching of your word and we, Lord, ask for your blessing upon it. We pray, O Lord, that truth would prevail. Error would be removed. Ignorance would be addressed. Coldness, Lord, dissipated. Raise us up, Father, to the obedience to your, of your, to your word. Raise our affections higher than what they are even now. Lord, as we adore and worship you, as we hear your voice that speaks in this word of truth, give us the heart of submission. Give us the mind to delight in it. And Lord, give us a joy and a happiness in our homes that we are the recipients of such goodness. We love you, O Lord, and we pray that what we do here, what we, Lord, say would be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, verse 13 and following. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, beloved, the sermon this morning is going to address what James deals with here, which I believe is the process of how temptation and sin work. How temptation and sin work. Part of being wise is showing discernment. Having the ability to discern between that which is good but from that which is bad. Light from darkness. But that which is good from that which appears to be good. That is seemingly good. That is, beloved, I believe what we're to learn here as we grow in grace, as we as Christian men and women and families bring into our hearts and our minds the greater ability of exercising discernment that we need to, to be able to choose between this or that. What does one thing have to do with another? That's all important. Making the connections of life. And in this connection, James wants us to understand the process of temptation and sin. Now, he wants us to understand it for a very, you know, simple reason that we would see it happening. 
That we would recognize it in our lives and we would stand against it. That we would see uh, what's taking place and we would then use the means of grace and come against it and fight against it as the children of God. Let me illustrate this for you. It's, It's like looking at an edifice, a house, a building. The more intricate the edifice, the more honor the craftsman has. But when we look at this edifice, we don't always under we don't always think about what it took to get there. We don't think when we when we when we stand in awe of some craftsmanship, we don't think about the laying of the foundation. We don't think about the the accuracy. We don't think about how level. We don't think about how plumb. We don't think about the things that went into moving dirt. And yet, when did that edifice begin? When there was a plan laid out. I mean, you keep tracing the steps. What does one thing have to do with another? Now, I'm not saying that we stand there and we need to calculate all these things, but this is a process. What we are glorying in started way back in the past and it had many, many, many steps to it to get to that place. Now, the same thing is true of a, of a person, a man or a woman, the character. Now, think about this. When we know someone who has been tested, tried, and we see this glaring integrity, this holiness, this sensitivity to the, the will of God, when we see the, the, that person exhibiting a preciousness for the providence of God and obeying God, I mean, that person's exalted in our eyes, in our sight. You know, we can think highly of someone, and then when there's, a, when there's a, 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 some event that happens that tests that integrity or character and they fall apart, well, they're not so high upon that list any longer. I mean, we need to understand what was it, that is, what's the connections that made that person of, of, of deep character and love of God, what made that person like that? And James wants us to realize, in a negative sense, here's what happens when temptation and sin couple together in someone's life. Here's where it leads, you see. Because just as we would honor the the person of high character and morality, we should not honor the one who has low character and low morality. Now, we need to be able to connect the dots. We need to be able to understand the process and the cycle. And that's what we're going to look at. And that's what James is doing here. He wants us to see the dots. He wants us to, he wants us to understand the cycle. He wants us to make the connections. And he wants us to begin, once we learn this, he wants us to put the opposite into practice. He's going to show us the negative, and he's going to, and what is required of us is to put the positive, the opposite, into practice we need to know the difference between we need to be discerning 
And the first thing that I want to do to help us be that is to address the difference between a trial and a temptation. I want to address the difference. I want us to know the difference because there is a difference. They are not the same. Even though the same Greek word is used for both ideas, they don't have the same meaning. And it depends on how the word is used and in when, what context that word is used in is how we are to understand that trial or temptation. Now let's look at a trial or let me at least affirm some things that we've already learned as we've been going through the book. Here's what we already know. Tests are multifaceted and multi-purposed. That is, there's many kinds of tests that we can experience and there are many reasons in God's mind why we would experience these tests. As James brings out, these tests and trials are often, often, if not majority, not if not the majority of them are un. Uh, they're, not, they're not predictable. We fall into them. These are tests that just happen. And when they happen, then we are to make decisions and make discernments and to figure out how are we going to submit and respond to these unexpected events. They have different durations. Some are short. Some are long. Some are just but a moment. Other tests can be for a period of years, a life. And they all have different degrees of consequence. Some tests that we face have small consequences. Some have very large consequences. Nevertheless, they give us an opportunity for what? The exercising of discernment, making choices. Life is full of choices, beloved, isn't it? Life's full of decisions. And we're making decisions every day and all the time. Of what we're going to do, what we're going to be, how we're going to do any number of things. We are making choices all day long. It is the opportunity to exercise these choices, to exercise godly character traits. It's the opportunity of the exposing of ungodly character traits. What happens when we think, you know, we're better than this testing? Why does bad things always happen to me? And we begin to murmur and complain in our own hearts and minds against the goodness and providence of God. How do we address that sin in our own hearts, in our own lives? Or how does that sin erupt out into the ears of our friends or family members? It's an opportunity to train our affections and conscience and drawing near to God in our hearts, desiring more of Him and to be closer to Him, deepening our dependence upon Him, fostering a greater appreciation for the means of grace, those things that excite holiness in us. It's the opportunity for all of that. It's an opportunity to grow uh, deeper and sounder in our prayer life, not less and not trivial. It's an opportunity for our worship to become more meaningful to us. 
to long for it, to desire it, to want it, to be able to gather with God's people, lift our hands and our voices in the worship and adoration of God, to be able to lay ourselves naked and bare before Him spiritually and realize that our God is good and He knows us intimately and He knows what we need and He can take one sermon that's preached to a number of people and apply it particularly to me. Our God is good. And these tests are those opportunities for us to be able to begin to exercise those choices, discernments, affections, emotions, things we do, things we put off, and all those things. It's an opportunity for us to grow in our Bible knowledge, to grow in our, our understanding of God's Word. Now, oh, beloved, I'm going to go ahead and jump far into the sermon, and I just want to say this. Are you going to be that man or that woman who in late in life recognizes I've been in church all my life and I know very little? Are you going to be that person? Are you going to be the one that at an old age cannot hear sermons that have meat to them because you've been ignoring it most of your life? Not able to hear, not able to listen to meaty sermons, not able to listen to those sermons that actually address life in a very gritty, uh, doctrinal way. You know, I think there's a reason the, 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 the trivial bubblegum sermons are very popular like candy. They don't require much thought. But they all sound really good. They rhyme. There's, there's all of these wonderful there's, you know, craftiness about it. But yet at the very end, you get to the end of it. You know what? What did I really get out of it? Are you going to be that person? And I'm going to address that later on. So that's what trials do. They draw us in a, in a whole and complete way to God. They draw us to God. Now, a temptation is the opposite. A temptation is the opportunity to take advantage of a circumstance or a person and for carnal reasons. That is, a temptation is a falling away from God. Tests, trials draw us near to God. Temptations take us away from God. And you need to understand that. And we're going to look at that in just a moment more deeply. These temptations provide an opportunity. That's what's always there for a temptation. There's an opportunity for the exercising of greed, lust. There's an exercise, there's an opportunity to take advantage of a circumstance or a person because of sinful desires. Covetousness. The love of comfort and ease over suffering for the truth and suffering for a good cause. A cause that, may, that honors God's name and an event or a circumstance that He would applaud and be for. It's an opportunity of temptations often contain in them um, this idea of gain. 
gaining something. Because often the solicitor to draw us away from God, whether it be our own sins and lusts, which we're going to deal with in a moment, often begins with this. Why don't you have it? Don't you deserve it? Someone's trying to withhold it from you. Don't you think you deserve these things? Often, sin starts, this, this temptation to sin begins with that one question. Don't you deserve this? Aren't you owed this? That's why it's important to recognize as we are to develop discernment and we are to exercise wisdom in our own life that we need to recognize that temptation can come from a friend. It can come from a spouse. You remember Job's wife. Job just began his trial of suffering and his wife who more than likely in all the good and prosperous times of Job, Job was a very wealthy man. They were prosperous with children and property and owned a lot of cattle and a lot of land and everything seemed fine with her, I guess, to worship Jehovah at that time. But what happened when God took those things away and Job began to suffer physically? She looks at Job and says, Job, why do you hang on to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? You can imagine... Imagine the knife in his heart. You think about a friend. Uh, people we care about, people we love, people we respect and honor. Sometimes they tempt us by saying, won't you just take the easy way out? Why don't you do that? You know, think about yourself. I mean... I've heard, that, you know, it's one of these statements, you've got to do what's best for yourself. And I don't, that, that sounds good, but here's the thing. We shouldn't start with ourselves. We should start with God. Once you do what God wants you to do. Because, see, what's one thing have to do with another? See, we've got to be able to connect the dots. We've got to be able to connect this decision with that decision and this decision with that fruit. We need to be able to know where this goes. The rabbit trail leads somewhere. These decisions and choices we make all lead to some place. And we need to recognize that. We don't just make choices in a vacuum. And that's one thing the world has done a fabulous job in convincing our children that you can live for today, not worry about tomorrow. Who cares about yesterday? Make your decision based upon your uh, emotions and lives and passions now because that's what life is all about. Passion. And don't worry about tomorrow. And so many lives have been ruined. Let me just suggest this to you. Decisions you make today, tomorrow, this week could have one year, two year, three year, four year, five year effect. For example... You might be that person that later on in life that says, where have I been in the last five years, six years? Where have I been? I regret these decisions I've made. I wish I could go back, but I have wasted five years. I could have, been, I could have done any number of things. 
But I, I, these choices and decisions that I've made to put my mind, to attach my heart to, to exercise my mind with, all of these things led to a five-year what? What? I hear this a lot. I've experienced it myself. We need to be wise and we need to understand things have connections. One thing has something to do with another and we ought to know where they will end up and where they will take us. Let me give you an example. We talked about a friend, a spouse. You can be a supervisor. A boss can encourage you to sin in your job. Will you? Can encourage you to compromise the truth, will you? Get you to testify against an employee that nobody likes. Tell a little white lie. Nobody likes that person. Hmm. We can get rid of them. Will you? And justify it. People can use their authority, status over you. What will you do in God's sight? Will you do what's right in God's sight? Or will you take the easy path out? And that's to just give in to the temptation. I want you to think about several people in the Bible that is highlighted in these tests and temptations. That's Adam and Eve. David with Bathsheba and Peter, as Peter wanted to protect Jesus from going to the cross. And Jesus gave his disciples, you know, he affirmed to them this truth that I've come to lay down my life for a ransom for many. I've come to lay down my life to give it up. I've come to suffer and to die. That's the end of my mission and to be raised from the dead. And Peter goes, far be it, Lord, that I'd allow that to happen. Now, Peter's love for Jesus went too far. Peter wasn't going to allow his friend, his master, his teacher to suffer. And what did Jesus do? He said, get behind me, Satan. You come to tempt me not to drink this cup of suffering my Father's given to me to drink. See, Jesus understood his mission. He understood decisions that he was making must lead to this conclusion. It must go to this place. And anything else that would be interjected into it is evil in God's sight. What God uses to test us for our spiritual growth and improvement, beloved... That is, as we actively submit to the trial itself, as James brings out in the early, in earlier on in chapter 1, we might turn into a temptation by refusing to submit to God's will, by exercising sinful desires that are stirred up in us because now we have an opportunity and a circumstance to apply our will over God's will. This is where James comes in and he wants us to understand this test. Let's look at three of them. Let's think about Adam and Eve eating what God said not to eat. Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 3. We're not going to spend a great amount of time here. I only want to point out a couple of things that I think are important. In 
Genesis chapter 3, it's verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any any tree of the garden. Now I want you to know how this temptation, what's the purpose of Satan's question? To draw Eve away from God. The purpose is not to grow up in godly character. It's not for her to grow in integrity. His purpose in posing the question, his motive, is for her to begin to question God's Word. Question Him. And of course, she did not give a complete answer or the most faithful answer. And what does He say? He comes back to what she says in verse 3, just where she says, And you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent says in verse 4 to the woman, You will certainly not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now that's all I'm going to bring out about that temptation. Because I want you to see all Satan needed to do was impregnate her with doubt of God's goodness. Her mind had been impregnated with the idea that God may not be who He said He is. That God really doesn't care about you. He cares more about Himself. I want you to think about that. What do we see there? We see this this idea, right, that um, God had told them not to eat. And Satan comes to solicit. That is, for them not to eat was to obey God. It was to draw near to Him. It It was in loving obedience become closer and closer and closer as they did not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but that they, as they would depend on God for their knowledge. For God was going to teach them what is good, what is evil. The eating of the tree was their, their will supplanting His will. I will judge for myself what is good and what is evil. I don't need God to tell me what is good or evil. I will be the judge. I will be my own master. I will be the Lord of my own life. And Satan solicited that by saying, Certainly, surely, did God do this? Did God really mean this? No. What's God withholding from you? What's God keeping from you? Because you deserve to know everything. He's God. You're a creature. Oh, but you deserve to know everything. He would keep something from you. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm playing the advocate here because these are the things that are said, right? These are how things are, are. These are how people. These are how people tempt one. Yeah. Well, you didn't know that. So you deserve to know all this. Think about David, David and Bathsheba. Turn to Second Samuel. Second Samuel, chapter eleven. This is a different situation. Not the same thing. Here we have a man of authority. We have a king. And where Eve 
where Eve is tempted to question God's goodness, what could, you know, and of course in light of being put in the garden, in light of having this, having the ability to eat of any other tree of the garden but one tree. One. All of these trees are yours. I have one tree. That's mine. Don't eat of it. That's pretty good, isn't it? I would say God's very giving. Look at King David. He's a king. He used to be a shepherd boy. Now he's a king. God had blessed him. God had granted to him riches, honor. God had granted to him. I mean, think about one reason Saul did not like David is because the people's heart was drawn to David. Remember, they'd go to battle and Saul got, would just become so infuriated because the people would talk about David has slew, David has slew his ten thousands and ten thousands. I mean, this mighty warrior king. And it just infuriated Saul because he was jealous. David had honor. He had riches. He had many wives. He had a number of wives. It was stated in the Bible, even with his weaknesses, even with the weakness of polygamy, God said of David, he's a man after my own heart. God, in one sense, winked at his weakness and said, hey, David's a man after my own heart. What does he do? Look at 2 Samuel 11. Notice how the Hebrew starts off, or the, our Bible start off, but how, and then it happened. What a, an attention getter. Then it happened in the spring of the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is, it, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers, notice, and took her. Notice the language. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came in, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. What do we see here? We see David. David starts in the place that so often we've been there. It's not what we have that we thank God for. It's what we don't have. We want. Amen? How many times have we gotten ourselves in trouble because we refuse to see what God has so graciously given to us? And all we can think about is what we don't have. David had money. He had honor. He had the heart of the people. He had wives. And he wanted her. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus. And in this temptation, we see these same elements, but we don't see the same results. We see Satan soliciting Jesus to take care of himself. We see, we see Satan soliciting Jesus to 
to um, pacify his hunger, to act out and to do something because obviously God's not concerned about his hunger. He's famished. Feed yourself. Turn these stones into bread. Take care of your life. And Jesus says, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of my Father's mouth. You see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not thinking about what He doesn't have. He's thinking about what He does have. The truth of His Father. And that's more important than life itself. I'm just going to mention these other things in passing and we move on. But you you think about where he says, let's go to the top of the temple. Let's throw yourself down and you'll be honored and people will will believe. And your father will come and he he will bear you up on the wings of or the hands of angels. And so to speak, and Jesus, you know, he shows him the kingdoms of this world. He says, you know, bow down to me or whatever. Show yourself to them. You can have all these things. And what does Jesus do? Quotes the word of God to him. And see, Jesus knew His glory was yet to come, so to speak, because he was in the midst of his humiliation. Satan's trying to get him to act outside of God's will. Don't submit to God's will. Don't submit to God's providence. Why are you drinking this cup of suffering? You could end it now. Rise up, Jesus. Take your rightful place. And Jesus submits to the will of God. What's James asking us to do? In James chapter 1, verse 1, right? He says, well, what do we do? Let, let patience have its way. Submit. Submit yourself to this trial. Submit yourself to the training of your character, to this providence in this trial. Become, and that is, have, have this character shaped and molded by the events at hand. And Jesus says, I'll wait. I'll, I'll continue to drink the cup of this suffering. I'll continue to walk this path of hardship. I'll continue to receive the scolding of those I came to die for. I'll continue to receive all of that because my purpose is to glorify my Father and die for God's elect. Jesus put off His glory and His ease to the end so that His Father would raise Him up. You think about Peter's denial of Christ, and I, I, you know, I don't want to read too much into it. We, John chapter eighteen. Jesus is taken into custody. Now Jesus had already told him he was going to deny him three times, and Peter couldn't hear him. He didn't listen to him. Peter, at that point, what do you think would have been appropriate when Jesus said, "You're going to deny me three times before the cru- before the rooster crows. You're going to deny me three times." I mean. It seems like the humble, sensitive person would have said, Oh God, have mercy on me. Don't let me deny you three times. What must I do? How do I prepare for this temptation? How, Father, do, help me, Lord. That's not what Jesus said. I mean, that's not what Jesus, Peter did. Peter seemed to ignore it. Not me, Jesus. I would never do that. And yet... In John 18, you go and read that and you see the little slave girl, little girl, little girl to this burly fisherman. Aren't you the guy? Aren't you one of his disciples? No, not me. I think you're one of those guys. Not me. No. I'm pretty sure we saw you with Jesus. Not me. And then the rooster crows. 
and this burly fisherman that just had pulled his sword a few hours earlier and cut the ear off of one of those men coming to arrest Jesus ran away crying like a baby. What was he doing? He was protecting himself. Peter had chose not to suffer with Jesus. Peter chose not to be identified with him. He was embarrassed. Here's the man that Jesus, this man was protecting Jesus just a few hours earlier. Now he doesn't want to be numbered with him. What a temptation. This temptation, in order for this temptation to work, brothers and sisters, there must be an inward desire. That's what James says. Let's go back to James. Let's work through this quickly. Turn back to James. Let's notice the the cycle as James. I've given you plenty to think about. Now, these are the things I think James has in mind when he writes this. That is, this. there is a process. There is a cycle of this temptation and sin. There is a desire, what we've seen in these illustrations, a desire for what is forbidden or withheld. Now, I want you to think about that. There is a desire for that which is forbidden. Adam and Eve would have received the knowledge of good and evil, but they would have received it from God, how God would give it to them. Right? Versus them wanting it now. The solicitation um, to sin in David's situation. I'm the king. He sent for her and took her. He, He misused his authority. He allowed his lust, his greed, his covetousness for a beautiful woman. He said, I can have her. I'm the king. And he used his authority in a very sinful way. I want you to think about something. The desire to have what is forbidden. And I don't mean it's always forbidden. Knowledge of good and evil would not have been withheld from Adam and Eve. It would just come as God wanted to give it. It's like sexual intimacy that people lose their minds over. Marriage is the proper context for it. It's not withheld forever. It's withheld for a certain circumstance in a certain context where it's beautiful and appropriate for two, for a man and a woman, not for single women, single men to just go out and exercise when they want it, how they want it, and everything else. Will Again, learning submission. Peter chose not to undergo humiliation. He chose not to be numbered with Jesus. He took the easier path. Instead of owning up to be a disciple of Christ, he denies Christ. Only Christ holds true and waits for his Father to bless him and to give him the glory that is due his name and work. And that's what Satan did. Satan solicited Jesus with comfort, with acceptance, and with greed. You want all this? You want it now? Take it. Look at James again. Notice what he says. He says, For no one, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Notice the word carried away there. Notice the phrase, carried away. 
That word is the, the conveys the whole idea of a temptation. It means to be to to draw to drag away. That is, we can have desires within us that if we exercise those desires, the desires are personified as dragging us away from God. To exercise this desire is for me to be drugged away from God. Not to Him, towards Him. The idea, James uses the analogy of a hunter and of sexual intimacy here. Of a hunter and intimacy to be drug away. The idea of something that's being captured, something that's been captive, or something that's been caught like a fish. A hunter may set a trap and the animal comes and he gets caught in the trap because of the bait. That's the idea there. Our sinful desires draw us away from God. There's an opportunity, there's something that's laid before us that we can have, but only if we sin to get it. You may have the opportunity for recognition, the opportunity for honor, but, to ha- but, but you'll have to sin to have it. Will you take the bait? You won't honor. You want to be recognized. You want somebody to... You know, recognize your goodness. You want somebody to recognize your stature. You want somebody to recognize how, how solid of a person you are. And all these things. And there's finally an opportunity for that to happen. But you, in order to have it, you're going to have to sin to get it. That's what it means to be drawn away. It's what it means to be enticed. To have these lusts excited. These greeds this 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 greedy appetite to want to want to want because remember how much temptation do we see in the bible how much temptation in our life starts with what we don't have not with what we have what we don't have we want more and more and more and more and more to be drawn off beloved we see here that there is this, this, this drawing away or this, this dragging away starts with this, some form of this solicitation. There's, a, there's an enticement. There's bait offered. There, again, using this, this hunting and fishing metaphor, he describes it as this opportunity where a choice and discernment must be made. Nothing good from... Nothing good comes from taking the bait as the fish. When the fish bites the hook and he's drugged out of the water. When the animal falls into the trap, he takes the bait and then the animal is, is drugged away to be killed and used for whatever reason. It's over. It leads to death and that's where James is taking us. First, there is a drawing away. First, there is an enticement, beloved. Ask yourself this. How in your life, when you look, in your, when you look at your life, what are those things that have been excited, these opportunities that have presented themselves to you and decisions you've made, but they have not drawn you closer to the Lord? They've taken you away. How many years have been wasted? 
Now, it could be any number of things. It could be anger, bitterness. It could be decisions for a job. It could be any number of things. All right, let's go to the next one. So you see there's the first one. There's the enticement. There is the, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his, notice, own lusts. But look at verse 15. But when lust has conceived, all right, notice the conception. This conception comes after the enticement to exercise this lust. When enticed, this entrapment, when this, there's this solicitation to evil, and then there's the capture. There's the enticement, and then when the lust has conceived. Guess what? It's done. Conception is the beginning of birth. When we're drawn away and enticed by our own lust, when we take the bait, when we, when we choose or discern to exercise our lusts to get what we want and to have it now, conception happens. What's the birth of this conception? What does this conception, what's the fruit of it? Notice what the text says. And when lust has conceived, we have what? Our lust and desires coupled with what? Opportunity. It gives birth to sin. Because we exercise our choice to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You're caught. You're caught. You know, that's one reason I want to say, you know one reason abortion is so popular? Nobody wants to be accountable. Nobody wants to be responsible. I want to be able to live my life. I want to be able to sin. I want to be able to do everything. See, God's world operates according to His rules, right? We know what causes babies to be born. We know what God's Word says, right? But it's nothing more than a putting off of that responsibility without dealing with the ramifications of those decisions. We don't want to be burdened with this life we just created, so we kill it. That's a very stark, tragic result, but it's true. Brothers and sisters, James wants us to know when we are caught and sin happens, it's sin begets sin. When that lust is impregnated with opportunity or, or when there's an opportunity for that lust and there's the impregnation of this desire to carry it out and we do it, it only leads, what does this have to do with that? And where does this take us? He says, this evil desire with opportunity exercise brings forth sin and begets sin and sin begets death. (laughs) 
Sin begets sin. Death in the ultimate sense of the meaning to die, sure, sure. To die that eternal death, to be, to be put in an eternal hell and torment forever and ever because of a refusal to submit to the will of God and believe in Christ and accept His love and mercy uh, for your own sins. Yes, yes. Those are choices that have great ramifications and consequences. You spurn God's mercy. You spurn God's love. You slap His hand of love. You'll suffer in eternity. You will. And you're going to stand before God like with everybody else. And nobody, nobody, nobody is ever going to be able to accuse God of not being good. Not being loving. I sent my son to die on behalf of all who would believe. And you spurned him. And you chose your way over my way. And now reap your reward. An eternal damnation where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's other, that, that death is not just for then, beloved. People die here and now. They die to the things of God. They die to the will of God. They die to the purposes of God. They die to the worship of God. Oh, worship becomes dead to them because they're dead. Praise songs become dead to them because they're dead. Their hearts can't praise God. Their hearts can't be thankful any longer. They've made so many sinful and covetous decisions and greedy decisions that their hearts no longer have feeling. I just read earlier, right, from Psalm 119, it talked about fat hearts. You know, that's a Hebrewism. A fat heart is an unfeeling heart. It has so much fat sin on it, it can't feel anything. It's incapable of feeling good anymore because of the exercise of evil. A person who doesn't come dead to justice and righteousness don't want God's justice and righteousness. They don't care that other people are abused or, or, or treated in an unjust manner because they're dead to it themselves. They don't care about their brothers. They don't care about their sisters. All they care about is themselves. And they go from drama to drama, from drama to drama to drama to drama. And it's all about them. How do we combat this? Well, we combat it with the right attitude first and foremost. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil or the evil one. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, sh or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His create, from among His creatures. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you with your thoughts of God this morning. How many times have we failed in being tempted because we questioned God's goodness. We questioned what He's already given us. 
and all we've wanted is more. And we've not even been faithful with what we've been given or thankful for it. And he keeps giving. Our God just keeps giving. What is your attitude this morning about God? Is he good? Is he infinitely good? Is God not worthy of your worship? Is he not worthy of your... Is he so good? You... you, I mean, the worship we offer him... Isn't it telling what we offer Him is what we think of Him? Right? It is, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, I want to address your mindset. Remember, remember, listen, turn back to Proverbs. I want you to put your eyes on this as we we close with these words. I I want you to see Proverbs 8. Verse 35 and 34. Now we're talking about death, right? We're talking about having the right attitude. We're talking about where sin takes us and blaming God for our sins, blaming God for the evil decisions we make. Look at verse 35 and 36. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Life and favor go together, beloved. They're coupled together, life and favor. I want you to see. Listen, can you say this morning, I am the favored child of God. We have a saying, David, we've used it, and I've used it among presbyters. Aren't you the Lord's full child? Look at all you have. Look at what He's brought you out of. Look what He's given to you. Look what He's done in your family. Look what He's done in your marriage. Look what He's done to your children. Children, look what you have. Look at your heritage. Look at the truth and the light you've been given. And there are thousands who can't say that. I'm here to ask you this morning, can you say, I am the Lord's favorite child? See, that's going to go a long way in fighting off temptation. Because if you're that spoiled child that's always wanting, 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 and never really appreciating what you do have, you're a prime candidate for the sin cycle and for death. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 30. But he who sins against me injures himself. Choices have consequences, my brothers and sisters. If you choose to do that which is evil in God's sight, you will harm yourself. There's no way around it. God's world. I don't care what psychology tells you. I don't care what your therapist tells you. I don't care what your college education teaches you. Otherwise, this is true. We live in God's world. And when we don't live by God's standards and rules, and when we don't acknowledge His graces and kindnesses, we injure ourselves. All those who hate me love death. My challenge for us as we leave today is this. Can you take today and meditate on God's goodness? Will you? Will you take the next month 
think about God's goodness. Because he's infinitely good. He's good beyond good. And brothers and sisters, when we begin to dwell on how good God is, guess what happens to those lusts? They fall by the wayside. Because we're exercising our minds in righteousness and holiness. We're keep taking our eyes off ourselves and we're putting them on the blessed Jesus. We're putting them on the blessed God of glory who came into this world to deliver us from shame, from guilt, from horror, from misery and sorrow, to give us a life we don't deserve. And how dare us demand something from God right now when he's already given us so much. Mm. I, I wish I could make God better to you than I do. I wish I could make God beautiful to you. I wish I could put in your hearts how good he is. I can't. But if what I'm saying to you this morning does not find an inkling of passion and affection, I beg you and implore you to repent of your sins and come to Christ. Because if you know Jesus... You've been touched. If you know Christ, you know how good he is. If you know Christ, you can testify to his goodness. Let's pray.